Welcome to Brain in a Vat. Today we are joined by Doug Husak, who is at one of the most renowned philosophy schools in the world at Rutgers, and he's a specialist in uh, the philosophy of law. And we're going to be talking today about uh, different theories of punishment. Uh, Doug, would you like to start with a thought experiment? So the thought experiment is one in which you select somebody in history who is uh, awful, who is a, a villain, let's say Hitler. And Hitler, in this thought experiment, has escaped, and he didn't really die in that bunker in Berlin. He has managed to escape somewhere to South America. He's living happily as an old man, and he is in, on an island, and he's enjoying some very nice weather, and he has a lot of amenities. He managed to take some money with him, so he's pretty happy. And you've discovered this, and you have an opportunity to make his life go worse in some sort of way or another. And so he's on an island and you can stipulate that on this island, uh, it has one side that has excellent weather and another side that has a terrible weather, a lot of rain. And you have an opportunity in some way or another to make it the case that Hitler is on the side of the island with the terrible weather. So you have a magical button that philosophers always have in their pockets that will somehow rotate the island and you can make the uh, island uh, rotate in such a way that Hitler suffers from terrible weather rather than good weather. And then the question is whether you have any reason at all to push this button and make Hitler's life go worse than it otherwise would go. And it's really crucial with this thought experiment to keep in mind that no one else is going to be made better off by your decision to make Hitler's life worse off. No one is going to be better. No, none of his victims are going to know about this. And there are no aspiring Hitlers waiting in the wings somewhere who can somehow get motivated or deterred by what you do. And so it's simply you and Hitler and no one else will know no one else is involved in any kind of way because it's crucial for purposes of trying to get clear about whether you're a retributivist or a utilitarian, whether you think you've got a reason to make Hitler's life go worse simply because of the horrible things he's done in his life, or since no one is going to be made any better off by your making Hitler's life go worse, uh, maybe you have no reason to do this. After all, Hitler's life will be worse if you push a button and make it the case that he'll be on the side of the island that's rainy. Uh, no one else's life will go better. And so if, in fact, you demand uh, a net balance of goodness or utility in the world before you have a reason to push a button, well, then you're going to think that there's no point, no good comes from punishing Hitler. What's the point? Why do it? No good comes of it. But retributivists think Hitler somehow deserves to be punished. Retributivists are people, I take it, who believe in something called desert. And Hitler, on this view, has a whole lot of it. And so there is some good that comes from punishing Hitler simply because of the uh, desert that is being, uh, you're, you're now treating him as he deserves, and that is a good thing apart from its effect on anyone else in the world. And so there's a, a lengthy thought experiment. You can adjust it in any of a number of ways to make it more realistic, but the general idea is whether you have a reason to make villains worse off simply because 
of the villainy they've perpetrated in the past without it being the case in anyone else's life is going to be better off in the future. If you ask any person who's not a philosopher, their gut tells you Hitler deserves to be punished. Retribution is very much baked into our, into our common sense account of morality. We think that bad people deserve to have bad things done to them. And the utilitarian has to say, well, we think that the avoidance of pain uh, and the production of pleasure is in and of itself good. And, you know, things like retribution and punishment are only good insofar as they do that. And so what's great about the experiment is you say, all right, well, let's tease away all the sort of usual justifications that the utilitarian has to explain why you put people in jail. And you say, here's someone who represents ultimate evil. And on your account, basically, nothing should happen to them because there will be no good consequences from making them suffer, only bad consequences. And so the utilitarian either has to bite that bullet of saying, well, I guess then we don't put the rain machine on. Hitler must enjoy the sunshine and the fact that he can't harm anyone and is quarantined from the rest of society and no one can learn any good lessons. Well, then that's it. They either bite that bullet. And I can see Jason's teeth are feeling very uncomfortable about chopping down on that hard bullet. Or they have to say utilitarianism is a faulty theory and they have to accept that retribution is a good in and of itself. I, I feel like I, I feel like Mark arranged the show behind my back because I'm I'm an avid utilitarian. Just so he could come up with a great counterexample. <laughs> well, you know, it's true that in the history of philosophy, as I as I read it, it is in the domain of criminal law and punishment that people really were moved away from being utilitarians in the 50s and 60s. It is, in fact, thought experiments like the very one I've described that really did make people who identified as utilitarians skeptical of their own view and led them to change their minds, I think. So utilitarianism, I think, was very popular in, let's say, the 1950s, 70 years ago. And as I read the history of philosophy, it is thought experiments like this that helped change people and make them take seriously retributive theories. So it looks now, if you are a retributivist, you have a reason to do something, even though the thing you do will make no one in the world happier and will make one person less happy. And so on, 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 there's a net loss of utility in the world, and yet it looks as though you've got a perfectly good reason to do it. You know, I have run this thought experiment past students who are not professional philosophers. They're taking their second or third course in philosophy. And so uh, just my own experience is that something on the order of 80% of people think, sure, it's a good thing that Hitler be made worse off, even though no one is made better off by what you do. And so that's just my quick read of the uh, available, you know, uh, of uh, student responses, maybe 80% line up with the retributivists, but 20% don't. This is not as though everyone is on board here, and people do change their minds over time, but you start with this thought experiment to get a sense of where people begin. So I find it very interesting that, that it's only 80%. Um, I think if it was like a, a, an ironclad dismissal of utilitarianism, I'd want a stronger intuition. Um, yeah, than eighty twenty. I think. Um, I, I also, you know, the question I want to ask is, why do you want to punish him? 
right? And, and the retributivist, I'm assuming the only answer you can give, correct me if I'm wrong here, is, well, to punish him, right, for retribution. And I say, but, but why? Why do you want to punish him? And, and it doesn't feel like there'd be an answer beyond that. Well, uh, why do you want to? I mean, this isn't about wants, of course. So you're just, I'm just maybe seizing on a choice of words you used. So if the question is, why would anyone think it's good to punish him? After all, in the thought experiment, he's worse off. No one is better off. So how can it be good to produce a world with less happiness than the world that you otherwise could uh, choose? And so why is it good then that Hitler be made worse off? And the answer is because he deserves it. And dessert is a property that some people have in virtue of the horrible things they've done in the past. And when people are deserving, then there is some good that comes from giving people what they deserve. Or alternatively, you have a reason to bring it about that people are treated in accordance with their desserts. And this is either a good thing in itself, or at least it's a reason generating property. If it's the case that Hitler deserves to be punished, then you have a reason to punish him because dessert is a property that supports reasons. And you have a reason to treat people as they deserve. So I'm going to give a, another famous thought experiment that'll make things even harder for, for Jason. That's nice watching him <laughs> a little bit. Um, so here's the other classic case. And what's interesting about this case is that it's, it's sort of a, it's a case from the sixties in America, but we, we find real life examples of it in South Africa recently. So the case is this, that uh, there's a, there's a murder in a small town. Um, the citizens are um, very upset and it's a race-based murder. So let's assume uh, 60s South, um, a, uh, a white mother has been killed and um, the white community is sort of, uh, you know, about to start killing indiscriminately um, members of the black community. And what the sheriff does is he decides to plant evidence uh, on behalf of a young black man so they can be a scapegoat. Um, and the system kind of uh, acts in this manner to sort of say, let's frame this guy. We can stop, we can stop uh, many people from being indiscriminately killed out of a race riot. We can stop the town being um, you know, burning into flames. We just frame this guy. We give him uh, you know, a very strong sentence, uh, maybe the death penalty so that the truth never comes out. Uh, and that'll quell the problem. And so what we do is we say this innocent person can be sacrificed to save many lives, to save the livelihood of the town, even though they don't deserve it. And the retributivist thinks that there's something wrong here, that this innocent person does not deserve to die because they didn't perform the murder. The utilitarian has to say, well, I guess if nobody ever finds out and you really do save all those lives, well, then the right thing to do uh, is to frame him and to hang him um, because they don't think that dessert is a freestanding value. If all they're doing is you know, measuring pleasures and pains, then the right thing to do is put the innocent man to death. So as the poor utilitarian in this argument, <laughs> um, this is a classic thought experiment. Um, and I do think the utilitarian here has some solutions which aren't as easily accessed in Doug's case. Um, so one of the solutions here, I'm a probabilistic utilitarian. Um, and so I think that 
what matters probably down the road is, is what you should take into account rather than what actually happens. I'm assuming you're going to specify the experiment so that no one will ever find out that, we, that, we've, that we've framed this guy, right? And you can say it actually is the case by hypothesis that no one ever finds out. But of course, this is the real world um, that utilitarianism is supposed to apply to. And in the, in the real world, we, we don't know that, right? We don't know that one day down the road, there'll be new technology um, that tells us that, that this was a framing. And, and, and this has happened, right? So we've got the Justice Project now, um, which goes back into very old cases and looks at DNA evidence and finds that convictions were incorrect. Um, and we can imagine similar, similar technology down the road that that, that will come about, that will prove that, that there was a gross injustice here. And if that would, it would have um, deleterious consequences for society as a whole, people would lose confidence in the legal system, um, in the judiciary, maybe in, uh, in the police. Um, and so in the long run, it'll cause more damage. Um, and so you shouldn't do it. Um, so the probabilistic utilitarian says, what's the probability of that happening? Well, it's a non-zero probability. It's probably quite high in the long run, maybe not a, a greater than 50%, but, it's, but, it, but there is some probability and so don't do it. Now, in Doug's case, I can't retreat to that solution because Doug is saying, well, no one will ever know what happens on the island, ever. It can't happen, right, by hypothesis. I wonder whether I can't try a similar kind of solution and say, well, in the real world, couldn't people find out about this? Um, but yeah, that may, maybe, maybe that's one kind of way out. Um, but I'm quite prepared to bite the bullet in Doug's case and not your case, Mark. Um, I, I, I feel like biting the bullet in Doug's case, it doesn't feel as bad. I mean, I was quite surprised when Doug said like utilitarians have changed their minds about utilitarianism because of thought experiments like this. It doesn't, it doesn't have that kind of sway for me. I just thought it was a watershed thought experiment which just tries to determine which intuition you have you know rather than rather than oh there's a definite solution here now make consequentialism fit with it or else your mother gets killed okay and you have video footage of the killer uh and uh it, it haunts you you know dramatically and you happen to go on a holiday and uh you find this person okay and they're living the life of riley um and uh you know and there will be no good in you know bringing them to justice uh you know but but you know that if you can make them accountable for the sin that they performed against you, uh, that on some level this person, you know, will get their just desserts. Um, I think the consequentialist can, I, no, no. I mean, the consequentialist can deal with that problem because I'll feel really good, right? He killed my mom. Um, yeah. So, so, so I, yeah, I mean, you'd have to set up the case that I'll feel very bad. Now, one response to all this is to deny that there is such a thing as dessert. Dessert is not a real property at all. It's just something that we imagine to exist. But if there is such a thing as dessert, well, Hitler has it. And so if in fact there is such a thing as dessert and dessert is a reason giving property, then there is a reason to treat Hitler as he deserves. And what he deserves is something that makes his life go worse. That's at least the way the thought experiment is supposed to unfold. And there, you know, one of the moves is just to, to say, well, there isn't such thing as dessert. Okay, maybe, there's, maybe there's a little bit of squirming room here. Uh, before I ask you for, for, if you think there is some squirming room here. Um, how about this? When you say there is a reason, there is a reason to press the button, and that is that Hitler deserves the punishment. Um, 
can the utilitarian say, yes, sure, there's a reason to press the button. It's not a moral reason. It's something else. Um, it is a reason to act, but it's not necessarily a moral reason. Dessert might, might be a reason for, for acting in certain ways, but, but, but it's, it's, not, it's not a counter, it, it's, not, it's not a moral reason that competes with the utilitarian reason for doing certain things. Sure, there's certainly going to be a whole lot of debate about what reasons are moral and what reasons are not. This certainly looks like a moral reason. That is, the result of it is to make someone's life go worse. And yet, on the thought experiment, it looks as though you, or at least you're invited to think, you've got a reason to do it. Why would this not be a moral reason? I, I mean, I, you could say that. And then, of course, press someone like me to try to divide moral from non-moral reasons, which is a tall order. I don't have any grand theory about that, but you're making someone's life worse. And so it looks as though the only thing that can justify deliberately, intentionally making someone's life go worse without making someone's life better is something in the domain of morality. Sounds like a moral reason to me, but that's not an argument. It's simply, uh, uh, response that uh, why would you think this isn't moral? What kind of reason would it be? It's not prudential. I'm not better off. Uh, what kind of reason is it if it's not moral? In the real world, punishment, of course, is not as costless as it is in my thought experiment. My thought experiment involves the convenient button that philosophers are always carrying around with them. But in the real world, of course, punishment involves something that costs a lot of money. We spend you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars over time in punishing people. And also you empower a group of police, prosecutors, judges, you give them enormous power and power of course can be and has been abused. And so that's another cost. And also mistakes are made. And so people are punished who aren't deserving. And so in my thought experiment, conveniently, it's Hitler. There's no case of mistaken identity. You've got the right person and it's costless. Pushing a button really doesn't amount to any real expenditure. Moreover, no one is in a position to abuse authority. And so one response to the thought experiment I've constructed is, well, you're right about the thought experiment, but it doesn't really tell you much about the real world because punishment in the real world is very different from punishment in your thought experiment. And all that is certainly true, but again, it's supposed to simply nudge you in the direction of appreciating that there can be reasons to bring about states of affairs, even though those states of affairs are not those states of affairs are not Pareto improvements. That is to say, no one is better off, and one person is worse off. And yet, you've got a reason to do it. And utilitarians are going to find that paradoxical, and then they're going to try to do some of the things you've done to look for other parties are going to be affected. How can you be sure no one will find out? Questions like that. And so you do what people do when they don't like thought experiments. They somehow disregard the stipulations that philosophers attach to these thought experiments. And that's what's often done. So how can you be sure that sort of thing? So let me, let me turn the tables a little bit and make it harder for the retributivists. So if the idea is that, you know, people deserve things, um, it should be proportional to what they did. So I'll give you a couple of hard cases. The one is uh, someone who's a spy. Okay. So they, they invade your privacy and they, they spy on you. What do they deserve? 
to be spied on because that's the, that's the, the problem they performed. Second case is uh, the rapist. Um, should we rape the rapist so that they get what they deserve? Um, both of these cases seem troubling. In the one hand, we have the problem that it seems that spying on the spy doesn't seem to harm him in the way that he harmed the person who was spied on. And the second case is that we feel that there should maybe be some limitations on what kinds of punishments we perform, and that there'd be something barbarous about, uh, about using rape as a form of punishment. Well, all true. I think you're certainly right about what you said. There are gonna be limitations on what kind of punishments are acceptable. And so almost everyone, again, consequentialists or utilitarians have a hard time giving an account of what I'm about to say, but most people believe in a kind of principle of proportionality and the principle can be formulated in different ways. I like to formulate it as follows. The severity of punishment should be a function of the seriousness of the crime. So all other things equal, the more serious crimes deserve to be punished with more severity. And so it isn't the case that we have what used to be called the lex talionis, an eye for an eye. You put out my eye intentionally, and what's right for me to do is to put out your eye. But the principle of proportionality says the punishment that I'm allowed, or the state at least is allowed to impose on the person who puts out an eye, is a punishment that is just as severe as is required to somehow be proportionate to the gravity of the offense. It doesn't have to be similar in kind, it doesn't have to be removing an eye, but it's got to be pretty severe since the crime was pretty serious. If there is such a thing as dessert, Hitler surely has it, and he's got more negative dessert than maybe anyone who ever lived. No one, let's say, can match him in, in his monstrosity and all the horrible things he did. So generalizing from a case in which you've got someone who's so awful and it's done, you know, unthinkable things is a little bit uh, misleading. You can't really generalize from that case to what you ought to do with garden variety shoplifters or people who do ordinary kinds of crimes in the real world. You can't generalize from that kind of case, so some people think. And it's true, of course, that in the case I've constructed deliberately, not uh, coincidentally, not accidentally, you've got someone who's got monstrous villainy. So, so what's so interesting is that because of the way you constructed the case, uh, the intuitions go a certain way, but you know, this is the real world and your button uh, could be designed not just that it changes the weather on the island so that it's a bit shitty. Um, perhaps you could press the button and, and the island becomes just awful, right? It becomes like this flaming lava pit where, where Hitler gets just uh, indefinitely roasted alive. Um, should you then press the button? Well, the utilitarian is going to say, well, a definite no, um, because, well, no one's going to benefit from it and he's going to be severely worse off. And the retributivist, he has to say yes, because it's proportional, right? There is no punishment great enough that would match what he's done. And so, yeah, yeah, flame him, you know, roast him alive in a flaming lava pit and just keep, keep, keep that, that, that medical, um, keep an ambulance nearby, keep some medical attention nearby so you can resurrect him uh, and just make sure that he's, he's, he's alive just, just long enough that you can, you can, 
you, you can roast him some more. And, 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 and you know, the, the retributivist has to say, yes, that's what you've got to do. Because if what counts is dessert and that the, the punishment is proportional to the, to the crime, well, then great. Um, and now it's starting to sound less intuitive. Sure. And so once again, it is contentious how much mileage you can get from the intuition I've con from the thought experiment I've constructed. And I admit that there are a lot of limitations, but the thought experiment is supposed to teach you something very important philosophically. Bentham in the, was the most important consequentialist perhaps who ever lived. And he wrote a lot about crime and punishment. And I believe it's the second sentence in his treatise where he says, punishment is an evil. And the only thing that can justify the deliberate infliction of an evil is the prevention of a greater evil. And so in the thought experiment, of course, you're not preventing a greater evil by punishing Hitler. And so on Bentham's way of thinking, there's no reason to punish Hitler. There's no greater evil you're preventing by doing so. And the retributivist, if he thinks that you do have a reason to make Hitler's life worse, thinks Bentham was wrong about that. That is a very important insight to reach. How much mileage you get from the thought experiment is for a later day, but the thought experiment is supposed to disabuse you of the idea that the only thing that can justify the infliction of an evil is the prevention of a greater evil. The thought experiment is supposed to show that that's false. So let's get to some of the things that I suppose people find appealing about punishment if they think in a consequentialist way. So they, they think about deterrence and they think about deterrence in two ways. The one is we can deter this criminal from ever doing it again because he'll have, you know, tasted the lash of the whip uh, or spent some time in solitary confinement and will learn from, from that evil and will never perform, uh, you know, similar acts again. And the other one is that he will be a lesson to others. So other people won't go out and commit these crimes because they see what happens to evildoers. Um, and that seems like a strong motivation for punishment, right? This, this sort of consequentialist account. Um, now, I, I wonder about something in particular, which is something that you've written quite a bit on, which is um, whether we should be criminalizing drug use. So I might think, for example, that people that um, use drugs often um, they might have some temporary pleasures from it. So there's the sort of high of, of the buzz of cocaine, but uh, often a lot of lives are ruined, right? I mean, people wind up penniless because of their addictions. They, their families break down. Uh, they might wind up worse off. And so someone who thinks, well, what we ought to do is strive for a greater good might think, well, it's, it's a very good idea to generally deter drug use by punishing drug users. So let's, uh, let's um, publicly shame them. Uh, let's give them harsh sentences, and uh, that will result in less people using drugs, and that'll be a great Assuming thrill. that works, though, Mark. So assu assuming that does work, right? Assuming punishment does deter. Yes, I think, so that's going to be one of the first questions, is uh, does this notion of deterrence work? Um, you know, in other words, is it causally efficacious? And the other one is, um, should we be punishing things where really what you have is a self-harm as opposed to someone um, directly causing harm to others as opposed to just their lives falling apart and then having consequences for their families and their friends. These are really huge topics, of course. But I think it's true that if you look, if are we in the real world now? Let's, let's, let's set foot in the real world where philosophers are loath to venture. <laughs> imagine we're there. And certainly the empirical evidence 
doesn't seem to support the conclusion that punishment for drug offenses is very successful as a deterrent. Lots of reasons why that's so. Drug use is something that's done more or less in private. The transactions are consensual transactions between a dealer and the buyer. And so it's very difficult for authorities to find out about drug use. It's not as though you've got a complaining victim who can come to the police. And so whatever it is that makes criminal law deter and make punishment deter, you're not going to get very much of that in the context of drug offenses. So you don't have to be skeptical that punishment deters, but you can be skeptical that punishment will deter, in this case, drug offenses. And everyone who's ever studied this says the deterrent effect of punishment for drug offenses is very, very weak. It's not as though there's nothing there, but it's very, very weak relative to the punishments for other kinds of crimes that are public. That's an empirical matter, of course, but I'm pretty confident that's so, and it's pretty intuitive that it's true. If you're doing something in your own house and somebody comes over to your house with a drug, you buy it in closed doors. It's not easy to catch people doing that. And in fact, some of the tactics that are used to enforce drug prohibitions are tactics that most of us don't really approve of. So let me, let me just make sure I understand because it seems like my intuitions just don't match the two of yours and maybe society as a whole, at least 80%. I just want... Is the intuition that that we want to uh, we 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 do think that people who take drugs should be punished, and we need some account for why, or is or is the intuition that we shouldn't punish people for taking drugs? Is that the generally accepted intuition? Well, I, I wouldn't start with an intuition. I mean, it is true that there are a whole lot of harms that drug use brings about, and it would be great if we could somehow reduce those harms. And one proposal is the best way to reduce the harms of drug use is to reduce drug use and perhaps eliminate it altogether. I don't myself believe all of that, but it's certainly true. And I think we can all agree that there are quite a few harms that are associated with and caused by drug use. And so it's not as though this is a kind of activity uh, like scratching your head or something that just doesn't really seem to have any costs at all. Drug use does have quite a few costs for the individuals who suffer a whole lot from drug addiction and so forth and their families and so forth. So drug use doesn't, does in fact exact the cost. And so it would be great if we could figure out a way to reduce those costs. That's the beginning. I mean, that's, I guess that's the intuition. I mean, it's of course based on empirical realities that drugs, alcohol and other drugs that are illegal actually do cause quite a few harms, primarily for the individuals who consume them, but for others as well. That's certainly true. You can have a social ill, um, but it's not that the criminal law is the only lever to address it. In other words, you may think that it's a bad thing that you've got rampant drug abuse, but it might not be the best way of dealing with it by punishing people. You might think, for example, that um, having, uh, well, I mean, for, I'll, give, I'll give you an interesting example. In, in Holland, there's a place called Needle Park where uh, junkies can shoot up in public. They can, they can take heroin in public. And what you find is that there are very few drug users in Holland. Um, part of it is because it's, you know, there's no mystique around it. Young children can walk in the park and they can see what it's like to be a, a drug adult junkie and say, that's not the life I want to lead. Um, and so they've managed to, instead of having harsh criminal sanctions, kind of rather uh, create sort of some kind of social sanction. Um, and that might be a way that you try and stop the bad thing from occurring without using the heavy hand of the law. 
it's really rare to see people smoking tobacco anymore. Tobacco, again, exacts quite a few costs. It is cancer producing, a whole lot of bad things come about because people smoke tobacco. And so in my lifetime, you see huge differences in the numbers of people who smoke tobacco relative to when I was your age, uh, or at least what I'm imagining your age to be. And so that's kind of a success story. And notice that it was brought about without criminal punishment. We never locked up a single person for smoking. Now, we did have rules about smoking indoors and so forth, but smoking per se, the very act of smoking tobacco was never a crime. And as far as I know, no one proposes that it should be a crime. So there's been a lot of progress made without using the heavy end of the criminal law. And so that's a good example that proves your point that a lot of good things can come about if in fact it's true that it's good that fewer people smoke tobacco. And I'm inclined to think that's so. And notice that that's brought about without any use of the, well, with, without, I think there's no use of the criminal law, but no one has been punished for smoking per se. So I'll give you an interesting case. We'll sort of update our time to, to the COVID world. And um, what we're finding is a sort of bevy of different kinds of rules and regulations in this world. And South Africa has done things that are quite unique. So we've had prohibition for alcohol and cigarettes. Um, so it is now a crime to um, sell cigarettes. Uh, it is um, known by the state that what this has done is lead to an illicit trade in cigarettes. Um, um, but the feeling is that if people stop smoking during this time, there will be the benefit of having less um, cost on the healthcare system. And the same view has been uh, put forward with regards to alcohol. So what you have is um, some people illicitly making pineapple beer in their, in their gardens, but otherwise you can't go and freely buy liquor. South Africa is unique in some sense in that we have high levels of um, alcohol abuse and violence um, from the consumption of alcohol. So we, a lot of bar fights and domestic violence and drunk driving, much more so than other parts of the world. So there's some sense in which um, the policy does have benefits. In other words, we have less people clogging up uh, hospitals, taking up beds, um, so they can be saved for COVID patients. Um, so here's a really strange situation where we generally think about prohibition in America as being an absolute failure, something which led to you know, the creation of the mob and sort of um, you know, empowered, empowered criminal networks and backfired. And in South Africa, we, we uh, have now very much embraced uh, prohibition for the supposed greater good. Uh, do you think it's justified in the circumstances? Uh, emergency situations and unusual scenarios like this virus, which is unprecedented in my lifetime, maybe not in human history, but this is a very unusual circumstance. And so unusual circumstances certainly call for unusual solutions and something that you wouldn't ever begin to think is justifiable under ordinary circumstances might very well be under these circumstances. And so that's the only comment I'll make about that. Certainly it's not as though you would wanna make it a crime to use tobacco or alcohol ordinarily, but in an emergency, uh, you have to be flexible and adjust your rules. And so perhaps it's justifiable. Uh, how is it working out in South Africa? I imagine reasonable minds differ as to whether it's a success or not. Yeah, I think the, the current view is that the alcohol ban may be a good idea. And my, some people believe this. I think Mark will disagree with me. Um, but, but yeah, the, the general consensus, my understanding is that the cigarette ban is, is irrational, but the 
the alcohol ban might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you have are you have doctors kind of cheerleading the prohibition because you know they're so well it creates space in our hospitals, um, but they are not valuing personal freedom. Um, so they're happy to say, well, these are our hospitals as a society, and we need to safeguard them together. Um, and we don't think about um, other kinds of resources in the same way as public goods. Um, and you know maybe depending on your view about you know whether people have a private right to healthcare only. Um, or that it is a public good that should be safeguarded and that we can trample on freedoms, um, you know, to have that benefit is going to make a difference. Yeah. So I think what's interesting about this discussion is that you can see, I, earlier I mentioned that there's, there's competing values for, you know, the decisions we should make, um, whether we should punish people, what kind of legislation we should implement. Uh, one of those values is morality, but another one that you've mentioned now is, is freedom. Um, and and um, earlier, Doug, you said, can you imagine um, doing something, having a reason to harm someone that wouldn't be a moral reason? Um, and, and maybe there would be, maybe there's, there's some of these other values that are coming into play, like um, liberty, um, freedom, and, and, and perhaps dessert, as you said, but perhaps you're saying that dessert's always a moral value, but, but maybe not. Um, and it sounds like there's going to be this clash of values. I mean, when Doug was speaking about whether or not we should, we should prohibit um, alcohol and cigarettes, it sounded like he was appealing to utility. Um, and Mark, sometimes you appeal to utility too. You say, well, it, it turned out badly, right? When, when the prohibition was implemented in America, it turned out badly, it had bad consequences. So utilitarianism seems to be the, the, the guiding light there, determining whether or not you prohibit. Um, but if you really believe that, and I could prove to you that there were positive consequences uh, for prohibition during this time, would you let that override your libertarian principles of always promoting liberty. Well, I think you're right. Interesting that there's two different ways of thinking about liberty as a value. Um, the one is a good in of itself. And the other one is in consequentialist terms. And then we might think, well, we get this short-term benefit. Doug alluded to the idea that we can have different rules in, in emergencies um, and that we get this benefit in the emergency, but there might be a cost to pay down the line that if you're a long-term utilitarian, you think, well, when we, restrict people's freedoms, um, it might be harder to give them back and that states tend to want to hold on to the, the powers that they have, that you, know, you, you never, never waste a good crisis. Um, and that might have very long-term um, negative consequences for, um, for us as a society in terms of freedom. And again, a, a retributivist believes that there are goods other than utility. And the thought experiment that we began with is supposed to lead you to believe, if you're on board, that treating people as they deserve can be a good, even though it doesn't maximize utility. So I'm a retributivist, I believe that, and yet I believe utility is a good. And so it would be mad, I think, to think we should have a law that punishes people that does more harm than good. Uh, That would be uh, almost crazy, it seems to me. So we're all utilitarians at that point, but I'm not a utilitarian in that I think utility is the only good there are other goods as well, but punishing people when you do more harm than good just seems like a terrible idea. So your concern is with the Benthamite uh, conception of utility as the only good. Yes. Um, you're saying there are other types of goods which sometimes outweigh utility and sometimes don't. Well, there are other goods, and yeah, they can. Well, they, they can outweigh utility. Yes, in that when you produce these goods, you have a reason to do so, even though 
you're producing a net balance of disutility in the world. So Doug, I want to ask you something else, which is if we think about um, the criminal law, we want to think about when, when we should have it. Uh, Joel Feinberg wrote this series of books called The Moral Limits of the Criminal Law, and he thinks about these different areas in which states tend to criminalize things. And so the obvious case is the harm to others. So, you know, we want to criminalize um, the theft of someone's property uh, or the assault of another or the murder of another. Um, and then he thinks about, well, what about things that aren't those kinds of harms but are like offenses? So should we criminalize the kinds of words that people use because people find them offensive or distasteful? Um, and then we have these situations of um, a harm to self, like drug use. Uh, and then the other cases what he talks about are like um, harmless wrongs. So let's say you engage in risky behavior that doesn't actually result in a harm. So let's say you um, drive drunk um, late at night speeding, but you never bump into anybody. Um, so you pose a risk of harm, but not an actual harm. What, what to your mind are the, the times when we think it's fair for us to have a, or it's correct for us to have a criminal prohibition? And when are the times when we ought not to have a criminal prohibition, but some other kind of mechanism for dealing with the problem? Right. Well, I have a number of constraints that I think any criminal law has to satisfy before it's justified. And so this is what I talk about in the book over criminalization that I wrote. I guess it's now been a dozen years. Time flies. And so I believe that the criminal law should be used sparingly. And then I have some conditions that limit it. And that's what the book is all about. I've always thought of myself as a criminal law minimalist. That's the word I've used throughout my life. I'm finding these days that there are people a good deal more minimalist than I am. I'm starting to sound like a conservative relative to some of my peers who want to abolish the criminal law, want to abolish punishment, and want to abolish police, want to abolish prisons. I'm not on board with those radical ideas. And so relative to them, I sound relatively conservative. But I've always thought of myself as a minimalist, but I'm learning uh, and I'm happy to say there are people more extreme than I am. Actually, that gives me some comfort. If you're the most extreme person in a the room, then you have some reason to worry. So I'd, I'd love to hear more about that, uh, Doug, why you feel that, um, crimin that criminal punishment shouldn't be abolished in its entirety. You know, in a way, the burden seems to me to be on the people who think it should be. Punishment has been something that all societies have done forever. And as long as we've known human societies, they've had institutions of punishment. So someone wants to abolish punishment altogether. One of the questions I ask when I come up to a, when I confront an abolitionist is whether they want to abolish only state punishment or do they want to abolish punishment in interpersonal relations? So I, uh, my wife did something that I'm unhappy about. I've told her, over and over again, the deal is uh, I make the bed, she washes the dishes, whatever the arrangement is, and she breaches her end of the deal. And so for a while, I give her the cold shoulder. I am uh, unkind to her. I mean, I'm not punching her or locking her up or anything, but I certainly try to make her life go a little bit worse. I'm less kind to her. And is that supposed to be unjustified as well? I think of that as punishment. I think, in fact, state punishment is continuous with what individuals do to each other all the time. And if you're an abolitionist about punishment, I wonder if it's just state punishment you're against, or do you think no one should ever be unkind to anyone ever if that's in fact punishment, because we don't believe in punishment. That seems to me to be an incredibly tall order. And to ask 
for a whole lot out of human beings. It's a point of view you could have, but that's one question I always ask to abolitionists is whether they just have a bee in their bonnet about state punishment or whether they have a, uh, some reservation about punishment generally. And I'm assuming their view is not one, it's not a utilitarian view, it's a deontological view. So they're saying that there is something wrong with punishment per se, rather than it always has negative consequences. Because I'm sure we can come up with some examples of positive consequences. Um, so that I guess they're trying to say that there is something, there's, there's some duty being shirked or some, something, something intrinsically wrong with, with punishment per se. Well, and, and, and others actually are empirically minded, and they believe that, as a matter of fact, uh, if you look at the empirical evidence, punishment really doesn't do any good. It actually doesn't deter crime. It, of course, is terrible for the people who suffer it, bad for the communities from which they come. They tell you a lot of stories about all the bad things punishment does. And of course, they're right. Uh, where I think they're wrong is whether punishment does any good. And I think it does, in fact, reduce crime. And, but that's an empirical claim. And so a lot of these debates are really fought on the terrain of criminology. They're empirical debates. Philosophers are less well-equipped, I think, to have those debates. You can have your intuitions, but I think this is a specialty that criminologists have about whether and under what conditions punishment ever deters and whether the good of deterrence is enough to justify the bad of punishment. Those are largely empirical questions, I think. But there must be specific cases, right? There must be specific cases where punishment has you know, undoubtedly more, more, more positive than negative consequences, maybe not as a policy, but specific cases, would they de deny that? Well, you know, you're asking me to defend to, to, to a position that you really don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, uh, this is a tall order in as much as, uh, again, every society we've ever known has had institutions of punishment. I believe that punishment can sometimes be justified and we can have good reason to punish even when it doesn't produce good. And so for people to think we should never punish under any circumstances at all, that strikes me as fantastic. It's the kind of thing that you know is a good uh, claim for philosophers to make because it's the kind of extreme view that gets philosophers excited. And then you, know, you really do have to support good consequences if you wanna retain punishment and that gets tricky so it's a worthwhile exercise, but I, do, I must say I find it uh, relatively fantastic. Of course, philosophers have cooked up lots of fantastic things in, in, in their lives. And so uh, there are a lot of examples of positions a good deal more outlandish than this, I suppose. So it might be the kind of thing that Thomas Sowell refers to as the unconstrained vision, where we think that humans are uh, a blank slate that are perfectly malleable and that we can create this utopia uh, where everybody will just love each other. And so we just, first of all, we start off by abolishing the prison system and abolishing crimes and uh, everything will fall into place and everybody will be, will be wonderful and they'll share their property with each other. And uh, you guys had a wonderful little experiment with this in America, in, uh, in Portland. There was a, a little uh, utopia called uh, Chaz. They got renamed to, I think, uh, Chop. And, uh, you know, the police were abolished in this uh, six block uh, radius um, and the community was uh, self-governing. Um, uh, until it, uh, it, it collapsed uh, in a state of uh, internal violence. Um, so I know Jason has some anarchist leanings and isn't so wild about the state generally, but this seems like a case where this uh, little unconstrained vision experiment uh, failed rather spectacularly. It turns out that you know, human nature isn't all that wonderful all the time.
But I wonder what people who are punishment abolitionists think should replace punishment. And very few people say nothing. So somebody comes into your house, you're sitting in your room, someone comes in, helps himself to your computer, it's yours, out the door they go, what should you do? And I don't know very many people say, well, nothing. You know, that's a, pos a possible position, but it seems that that's not something that many people are gonna find acceptable. And so if you wanna abolish punishment, you better have some answer as to what's going to replace it. Yeah, I, look, you are gonna have pacifists who say, you know, do nothing. Um, but I, I agree with you. I don't think that's a very coherent position. Um, I, I really like, um, I, I, I'm an anarchist. Um, so, you know, my view is that you should abol abolish um, state punishment. Well, because I don't want a state. Uh, but that doesn't mean that nothing would replace it. Um, so Mark's example of a community where they abolish the police and then everything falls apart, that wouldn't quite fit the kind of anarchist model I would want. Um, I would want private security. Um, and that private security would provide um, protection over your property and some form of, of maybe not punishment. I don't think it... Yeah, I don't think it would provide punishment, um, but it probably would provide protection. So protection isn't punishment. So someone comes at me with a gun and they want my money and they're willing to kill me to get it. And I have this protection agency and they're paid to protect me from villains like this. And so they can protect me, but, uh, and they can do that. Presumably they can even kill the assailant, but better not call that punishment because that we don't like. Is that Correct. the view? Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much the view. Yeah. There'd also be some excommunication. Um, so you can imagine communities that excommunicate people who don't abide by the rules um, that they collectively agree on, uh, rather than some central state um, determines. Um, well, there was a time said that exile is a fate worse than death. Um, and they might very well think of your excommunication as a punishment. <laughs> you know, there was a time when there were convenient places in the world to which people could be exiled, Australia, even Georgia in the United States. But these days, there aren't too many desert islands sitting around from, to which people can be exiled. And so uh, those ideas might have been pretty good in the early part of the 19th century when there was this big continent of Australia. These days, it's harder to understand the empirical realities here. You know, what are you really going to be doing? Uh, I, I understand banishment. That is, there are places that you used to be allowed to go that you can no longer go. But exile, there's a place to which you have to go. Uh, and it's not a prison, because prisons sound like punishment. I just mm -hmm. don't, and I wanna hear the details and how that's all supposed to work. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think I've thought this through sufficiently to give those details, but really I think banishment captures better the concept that I had in mind. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea that you just may no longer be here, not that you have to be there. Mm -hmm. Because that sounds more like imprisonment to me, which wouldn't be consistent really with that. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Well, these are tough cells, I think. Uh, it's going to be very hard to know how to implement any of this. You know, you want to see the vision. Uh, we've got something in place, and it certainly needs a lot of work. We could make punishment better. We can make it more humane. We could improve the criminal law. I've been trying to do that my whole life, and there's a lot of room for improvement yet. Certainly, there's room for improving the police, and I have spent my lifetime trying to think about ways to make things better. But abolition is a cliff uh, that I don't want to jump off. But other people uh, may want to take that step, and they're really interesting to engage. So you hinted earlier to this notion that you know, you're a criminal law minimalist and you think that there are certain things that the criminal law should adhere to to be, I suppose, valid. Uh, what are some of those things? What are some of the constraints? 
well, there's got to be wrongdoing. You know, if people deserve punishment, uh, they had better have done something wrong in virtue of which punishment is justified. And you can just, again, imagine a thought experiment in which uh, someone is confronting another person who is in a position to punish him. So I'm the defendant in a court and a judge proposes to punish me. And I say, judge, what have I done wrong? And the judge looks at me and says, well, nothing. I haven't done anything wrong, but your punishment is justified nonetheless. That I find barely coherent. I mean, I, I don't know if it's incoherent, but it's certainly uh, Kafka-esque at best. So before anyone can deserve punishment, they had better have done something wrong. So you need a theory of wrongdoing before you can generate a theory of the criminal law, or so I believe. And that's the connection between criminal law and moral philosophy, because the sense of wrongdoing that's going to justify punishment and justify punishment, punishment morally had better be moral wrongdoing. And so that gets into trouble with the kinds of crimes that maybe we want that don't seem to punish and don't seem to prohibit moral wrongdoing. And people like me who think moral wrongdoing is a, is a condition for justified criminal law and punishment are going to have to tell a story about what philosophers call malum prohibitum, kinds of offenses that maybe don't prohibit moral wrongs, but are crimes that most people think we ought to retain. And that's going to be a tough thing to say something about. I also take it that it might be a necessary condition, but not sufficient. So for example, right. it used to be the case that we would make it a crime to commit adultery. I think a lot of people will think that adultery is, is immoral, that it's wrong, um, or that lying is wrong, or maybe that blasphemy is wrong, but that the criminal law ought not to play a role there. Um, right. But as you say, you know, things that, that are criminal, you want to be wrong in addition to maybe some other things. Right, so the, there are gonna be other conditions in, in addition to wrongdoing, but that are gonna supplement the wrongdoing condition. Let me just mention too, the wrongs have to be substantial. They can't be trivial. So trivial wrongs aren't gonna justify punishment. That's like uh, what would be the, the metaphor, you know, hitting, uh, swatting a mosquito with a hammer or something. You don't wanna use the heavy hand of the criminal law to somehow prohibit trivial wrongs. So you need a theory of which wrongs are trivial and which wrongs are substantial. That's one condition. And so you also need a theory of which wrongs are public wrongs, because if wrongs are gonna be punished by the state, then they have to somehow concern the state and they can't be private in nature. And that's gonna be really hard. Some people think there is no uh, theory that you can, no story you can tell to distinguish public wrongs from private wrongs. I'm very much on the side of those people who think there is a difference between private and public wrongdoing. And so only public wrongs should be criminalized and subject to punishment by the state. But that's another thing that criminal law theorists like me uh, argue about with, with, uh, with my peers. So that's an interesting case. I mean, let me bring up something controversial, let's say, which is for a while, there was no concept of marital rape um, in some jurisdictions. And the idea would be that this is in the private domain um, and uh, therefore the state shouldn't get involved. Is that the kind of private wrong that you have in mind? Well, yeah, I, I think it's uh, something that people at one time probably believed to be a private wrong. I think the theory was that the very act of marriage uh, was thought to be consent to sex. And so non-consensual sex always was wrong, but your spouse 
consents to you by the act of marriage, something like that. I mean, again, it seems horribly antiquated, but it wasn't as though it was thought to be a private wrong so much as it wasn't wrong at all because it's consensual. And what's wrong with consensual sex? I mean, again, this seems bizarre to our ears, but I think that was the way people thought about it. And, you know, uh, I think 1992 is when marital rape was made a crime in England. And so up until then, there was a spousal exemption. So you didn't really need literal consent from your spouse because that was presumed through the very act of marriage. That was the theory, at least as I understand it. Again, that's uh, not so ancient history, but it's still history that we've uh, moved beyond for good reason. So something else that you've written about quite a lot is this, this notion of fault. And, you know, South Africa has a common law system. You know, we generally punish things on the basis that you have to have done the thing uh, negligently uh, or with intent. Um, and we get a couple of interesting scenarios. So the one is in South Africa, for example, we can have a rape without a rapist. So you can, in other words, you can have a non-consensual act. Um, the victim doesn't consent to the sex but the um, person performing the act believes that there is consent. One of the sort of famous African cases is as follows. Um, husband goes to a bar, meets these two guys, and he says, my wife has this very lurid fantasy. She wants um, two men to break into our house wearing balaclavas um, to have sex with her. She's going to scream and say no throughout. But don't worry, it's all part of the act. This is her fantasy. Are you guys up for it? I'll buy you a round of drinks. And the guys sort of think about it and they say, okay, fine, let's do it. And they break into the house, they have sex with the wife, she screams her, her head off. Turns out the husband lies. Um, and that it's, in other words, there is no fantasy game at all. He just wants his wife to be raped. And in some sense, she is raped, but they're, the, the perpetrators believe that they're involved in a consensual activity. Um, and the question, I suppose, is whether, you know, whether they should be punished. Um, have they committed a crime? Um, or whether um, they should go scot-free? You know, I, uh, whether you're aware of it or not, you're describing the Morgan case in England. This is a real case, uh, and it's in the UK, and it caused quite an uproar because the judges said at the time that the mens rea required for rape was intention, and these people don't have the intent to have non-consensual sex because they believe there's consent for the reasons you just gave. And so these people were not convicted. The law was subsequently changed to make these people guilty. But I mean, there does have to be some mens re, some sort of mental state that has to go with the act before you can be responsible for what you've done. And in the context of rape, it's not easy to say what that is. People disagree. I think it's gotta be something like recklessness, conscious disregard, of a substantial risk that the person with whom you're having uh, sex hasn't consented. And that sounds like enough to me to make you liable for rape. But if it never even occurred to you that this person isn't consenting, then I just don't see how you can be responsible for or blameworthy for the act, even though from the victim's perspective, that victim is being raped. So yeah, I do believe there can be rapes without rapists. I've, I actually wrote a paper with that title, and I'm actually surprised to hear you use that uh, expression without being aware that there is a literature, maybe, maybe you are aware, there's a literature on this, of course, and trying to figure out the culpability requirement to make people responsible for, or blameworthy for, or liable for the act of non-consensual sex. That is not only 
a tough issue, but it's one that's you know politically uh, dangerous terrain. People get very exercised about this, and so that's the kind of topic that is not one that you broach without some trepidation. So the other case that springs to mind on this front is a, is a Canadian case um, where you have a couple um, who decide they're going to engage in a particular sex act, which is that um, during the course of penetration, the man will choke the woman to the point of her ceasing consciousness. She requests this. Um, and that the sex act is to continue during this time, which is what she requests. Um, and that then she will then come to, um, and they, they perform the act. And afterwards she then lays a charge of rape. And the Canadian um, appeal court, from what I recall, um, held that um, he was liable for rape on the grounds that there was no capacity for ongoing consent during the time. So even though there had been, let's say, a prior consent to the act, because it could not continue um, while she was unconscious, therefore he should have known that he was engaged in an act of rape and was held liable. And it's interesting, we think back to our, our marriage case where the notion was, well, we got married, and so therefore you consented until you know, we cease to be married, either you know, until death does part or we get divorced, to sex ultimately. Um, and we sort of think, well, that notion is antiquated and we chuck it out. Um, and then we again zoom in into a moment where we say, well, you have to have this ability to have consent throughout. And if that ability isn't there, well, therefore we have a rape. I mean, these are really tough cases. Fortunately, they're few and far between. I mean, there are you know, millions of rapes and the kind of scenario you're describing is pretty unusual, which isn't to say philosophers shouldn't be thinking about it and exercised about it, but there's a whole lot of interesting stuff with more run-of-the-mill uh, run cases. So frankly, I don't know quite what to say about the case you've given. Obviously, there's arguments to be made on both sides of that one, and I'm not sure how I come out. I think what's interesting is that a lot of these problems arise when you take into account things other than utility, right? So as soon as you've got a deontological system or a retributive system, you've got to have a set of rules and those rules all have sub rules and sub rules. So for example, I ask you, well, when should people be punished? And you say, well, there's at least three constraints and each of those constraints need accounts and each of those accounts are going to have questions. Um, and there's going to be a lot of debate about whether, for example, a crime is public or private um, and or not necessarily a crime, but, but something that has been done, whether that's private or public. None of these issues are issues for the utilitarian, right? The utilitarian just says, well, what's, what's the positive or negative utility associated with this action? Um, now, of course, you get more sophisticated accounts of utilitarianism that are going to have constraints on, on what types of utility are associated with punishment. Um, but the pure utilitarian doesn't have these problems. The pure utilitarian has other problems where he's not accounting for punishment in the kind of situations where you want to account for it. So the one situation is the situation that we started with, the thought experiment of Hitler on the island. The utilitarian can't explain why you should press the button. So the utilitarian seems to be overly exclusive in terms of which, which types of punishments he'll allow. He excludes certain um, punishments that should be included. But the problem for the deontologist and the retributivist is that he has such a tough job to do in terms of defining all the situations when something should be punished and when something shouldn't be punished, that it becomes a morass of just 
infinite debate, right? As you said, you've been working on this all your life, trying to fix the system and improve the system, and it still has a long way to go. And that's my concern as a utilitarian, is that it becomes a quagmire of definitional problems. Well, I, I admit that if you have one good in your universe, that you've got a much simpler theory and things, uh, things are simpler, at least uh, to that extent. But I just find the whole thing so unappealing. And so I'm willing to uh, undertake all this complexity. 